This podcast may contain disturbing content for some listeners. It's intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So today's missing person, I could not figure out several things about this, I, and I'll, I'll run it by you. This is, uh, I have some thoughts on on why it may be in here, how it's in NamUs, but uh, I noticed that he is also an active case on Doe Network, and I noticed that there was an interesting web sleuth about him. I don't know what all you have to say about him, but um, okay, so... The missing person for this home for the holidays episode, it comes from Dunn, North Carolina. He's in NamUs as missing person 2427. He is an African-American male who is 43 years old, uh, six foot tall, uh, 180 pounds with black hair and brown eyes. And he had... It says both of his ears were pierced and he had scars on his left arm and on his chest. He was last seen wearing blue jeans and a yellow shirt uh, and either tennis shoes or house slippers that could potentially have the tops cut out because of bunions on his feet. He goes missing on December 25th, 1987. Uh, if he was alive today, he'd be 78 years old. His name is Jimmy Nelson Davis. So that's out of Harnett County, North Carolina. Now, his name is cases created July 8th, 2009, which is kind of an odd time for a name is case to be created, um, particularly since he has missing person 2,427. Uh, that's his, his place in here as, as far as the file number. So here's what we have. Jimmy Davis's boss dropped him off at his house on Spring Branch Road on Friday evening, November 17th. When his boss came to pick him up the following Sunday evening, he was told by Davis's live-in girlfriend that she had last seen him about 11 o'clock that morning and that he had walked out of the trailer they shared when um, she saw him. The family and law enforcement searches over the years have have produced no substantial results as to his whereabouts. In the summer of 2006, 
the Dunn Police Department receives a map that has the location of an alleged homicide victim's body. The map pinpoints the location as being close to the trailer park where Davis used to live. This and the name Jimmy David or Davidick, depending on which source you read, on the map have led to speculation that the map is in reference to Jimmy Davis. Ground penetrating radar and foot searches have been conducted in that area, but local and state law enforcement, um, they, they haven't had any luck there. They are actively involved in his case. They say that his social security number has not been active or used since his disappearance. Now, Mr. Davis has had previous connections to South Carolina and Maryland, in addition to North Carolina. He has left his home in the past for extended periods of time, but he always ended up staying in touch with his family. And he always attended significant events such as his mother's birthday and uh, Mother's Day. Uh, there's no vehicle information with his case. And like I said, he has a web sleuth entry. Now, that's kind of, of, of rare, but it's not a lot of information on the web sleuth entry. They do mention the Charlie Project uh, here, which basically says the same thing I just said. They mention uh, the Doe Network having him under... Uh, I think they have the number on there, maybe. Maybe not. Um, for some reason, I thought I saw a Doe Network number for him. And I'm not seeing it right this second. Uh, there is an article that's posted up on Jul uh, July 20, July 21st, 2020. And it's just a, it's a, like the brief text of an article. It says 17 years after the disappearance of Jimmy Davis, a map allegedly showing where his body could be found was sent to Dunn investigation division. After an exhaustive search, nothing turned up. Leaving investigators empty-handed in the then 29-year-old case, which now it would be 31-year-old, it would be 32 around Christmas, I guess. It's just like the earth opened up and swallowed him in and just wiped him off the face of the earth, said Davis's sister, Galena Harris. Harris remembers the last time she saw her brother, Christmas morning, 1987. He came on his own terms and we would go see him, you know. Two years later, and... Keep in mind, I'm telling you some contradictory information, and then you and I are going to sort it out. On November 17, 1989, Davis's boss dropped him off at his home on Spring Branch Road in Dunn. When the boss came back to pick him up on November 19, 1989, Davis's living girlfriend said Davis left the home that morning and never came back. So Davis's family and investigators, they want somebody to come forward and break their very long silence on this case, uh, which they say is a pretty uh, bizarre case with a lot of twists and no resolution, including this 2006 map. So, okay, this gets a little strange, and I don't know how you want to handle this with Jimmy Nelson Davis. Um, I'm sure that you have already seen this part, but he has a significant criminal record. Did you see this? I don't know that I saw his record, but yeah, I mean, I'm aware that he had a lot going on. Okay. Uh, so, uh, so Jimmy Davis or Jimmy Nelson Davis, his criminal record shows that according to some sources, he shot a man in 1985. Did you see that? Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
That would probably be a good place to start looking. Yes. Um, as far as revenge goes, right? That's what I'm thinking. I mean, it seems to be accurately reported. I, I don't have a lot of details on that, but that would tie in time-wise. Now, if, if you noticed, I mentioned he's, his date of last contact is considered to be December 25th, 1987. But they also talk about him in November of 1989. Right. And my presumption is that um, it was the family that reported him missing. And the last time the, t- uh, the last time the sister had spoken with him was that Christmas in 87. Correct. Okay. And so that's the discrepancy there. Yeah. So I, you know, I don't know what happened here. I don't, I don't know a hundred percent that all these sources are right. I will say it doesn't look like a lot of attention has been paid to this case. I would agree with that, actually. Um, Dunn, North Carolina, from what I recall looking into, is a very small area. Uh, It's like a small town, right? Yes. And so very limited resources. Uh, I I wanted to ask you, the police didn't publish uh, the map that was hand-drawn and sent to them, right? I don't think I've – I saw a couple of articles that are – referencing it um mm-hmm. and I, I if they did it might have been like in passing in a video but i didn't i don't think i saw the hand-drawn map okay i was just curious but i i think that uh so i i do think it hasn't gotten a lot of attention uh sort of a marginalized victim in in several ways right yeah um we've talked previously about uh, the invulnerability of uh, middle-aged men, right? Yeah, we have. Um, and so he was like 45, I think. He, he was a middle-aged man, right? And so they are literally the least vulnerable as far as, you know, uh, possibly being victimized uh, when it comes to any sort of abduction or any sort of a situation where... Uh, they end up somewhere they they end up being somewhere that they don't want to be. Uh, for the most part, middle-aged men can take care of themselves. Now, that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't have shot him, right? Um, I would tend to agree with that, yeah. Okay. But, like, in this case, you know, it, somebody took... Uh, well, I, I actually don't know. It's possible somebody went to great pains to make sure he wasn't found. It's also possible that he just hasn't been found, right? Yeah. So we don't really know. Um, a long time has passed. Uh, so all that being said, it's a combination of these things, like the small town, the fact that uh, that he was who he was, and I know his criminal history played into this, right? I don't know the circumstances of why he shot the man in 1985, right? I don't either. But when you, you know, if you take that into consideration, which, you know, people do, you tend to start losing sympathy, right? Yeah. Okay. Or people think you ran off because you were trying to get away from that, situ- that situation coming back. Right. Or like there's been so much shooting happening that you don't even care about that. You don't want to be involved in that. Right. Correct. Like the normal onlooker. And so there's a lot, right. There's a lot to consider there. Correct. 
I've seen this in more than one place now, and I don't know what it means. And honestly, it it's irrelevant to our show. But I've seen it repeatedly said that he had a tendency to cut off his bunions. I don't know what they meant by that. I looked at it. I was trying to figure out what they were going for. Uh, you know, I, I think they must have meant corns. I'm I'm not able to have a conversation about any of this. Um, so I'm so sorry. One of the interesting things I saw was uh, the sergeant. So this has an active um, detective working this case from time to time. The sergeant in this group actually was on the news saying, whoever sent the map, if you want to send a more detailed map, will look a little harder. I saw that one too. I saw that too. And so it's either a red herring, right? Yeah. Uh, or it was legitimate and misunderstood or something like that, right? Yeah. Uh, but you still didn't see the map, right? No, I haven't seen it. I, I couldn't tell you what it says. I, I know they reopened the case uh, after that happened in 2006. I know that in 2007, the, the case was reopened. And I actually know there were several companies contracted to come in and do sort of a look for him. And they, they haven't been able to, to find him. But, yeah, I, I don't know much about this. I just hope he comes back. I... um. Or is found, whatever you want to say. I'd be interested to know um, more about that. To me, it's just so random. Somebody sent a a map and said, hey, here he is, right? And then they couldn't find him. And then the police are like, hey, send us another one with more information. Yeah. That's bizarre, right? Well, I mean, maybe Jimmy sent the map himself. I don't know why he would misspell his name. Um, cause the, the spelling of the name, I didn't understand at all. Oh, I figured that was just a, um, I figured that was, uh, like in handwriting. They just missed. And, it, and they couldn't tell what it was. Okay. You, you know what I mean? Cause the way, when I looked at it. Yeah, I would, I would buy that. Yeah. Okay. Like they just couldn't tell what it said, but then. The bigger picture was that, oh, yeah, it's probably this, like, one guy that's missing from this area, right? Because <laughs> yeah. it's there's not a lot of people missing from Dunn, North Carolina. No, I, I you know, I, I can't imagine uh, the population is that big. I didn't get into all – I don't – I'm not super familiar with Dunn. I know where it's at. Um, I, I passed by there, but I don't know a lot about it, so – I just wanted to highlight his case. He comes up in the idea. Well, first of all, it's a it's a Christmas case in terms of when he last saw his family. Although it's kind of a Thanksgiving case in terms of when he might have really disappeared two years later. Right. But he is a middle aged guy, forty three in one instance, forty five at the other time, and you know it's like you said. Uh, frequently, those cases are not taken as seriously. And if he's out there, I'm totally curious why he hasn't come back. Um, uh, well, Dunn, North Carolina has uh, less than 9,000 people based on the on some census da- data. And there is one person missing from Dunn. And, and it's him. Okay. Well, there you go. So we do have an, we have an exoneration case for today. Um, in some ways, it's sort of a doozy. When I looked at it, I was like, I'm not sure if that's enough information for an episode or not. Uh, but 
uh, I do. I have some opinions about it, and I figured between the two of our opinions, it might actually be an episode. Um, it's a more recent one, and it's not. It's not actually as serious as some people might think. Um, so this one comes out of Maui County in Hawaii. Um, specifically, this is an other violent felony. The date of the reported crime is 2010. The date of the conviction is 2011. The date of exoneration is in 2014. The sentence is nine days, according to uh, the National Registry of Exonerations at uh, University of Michigan. If this is a white male, he is 51 years old at the time of the crime. And contributing factors are... uh, perjury or false accusation. And there's no DNA evidence that helps contribute to this particular exoneration. Okay. On July 20th of 2010, Richard Doak II and Kian Rutuno, uh, they called police on the island of Maui. So that's in Hawaii. They reported that 51-year-old Mark Anderson had threatened to kill them with a knife unless they moved off some property that Anderson lived on and managed. Police arrested Anderson and they confiscated a folding tree saw. Officers said that when they approached, Anderson told them they should shoot him. Anderson was charged with making terroristic threats against uh, Richard Doak and Keon Matuno. In January of 2011, Mark Anderson ends up going on trial in circuit court there in Maui. So the two witnesses testified that they were living on a property in the village of Nahiku, pursuant to a work trade agreement with a man named Alan Long. So Richard Doak is asked to identify Alan Long in court, and he points out a juror. He testifies that he had seen Mark Anderson on the property. Now, Kian, for her part, she testifies that she had paid Alan Long $400 to live on the property, but that Long had moved away and that the property was really trashed. She said that Richard later moved in with her. Richard said that he and Kian were living on the property and that it was actually owned by a man named Jeremiah Myers, who lived in Alaska. So whatever you want to say here, there's a lot of information flying around. Richard acknowledged that there were squatters that lived on the property, and he said that some of them had lived there for two years or more without paying any rent. He also admitted that his initial claim to police that Mark Anderson had brandished a knife was wrong. He testified that it was a tree saw that he saw in Mark's hand. So Richard testified that on the day of the incident, he and Kian had hitchhiked to the nearby village of Hana to do some shopping. According to Joke, Mark Anderson approached them and told them to move off the property and said that only Mark Anderson was allowed to make deals that would allow people to work there in exchange for the right to live there. Both of them told the jury that Mark had pulled a knife and threatened to cut their heads off while they were asleep. Richard said that he had picked up a rock, and when he did that, Anderson walked off, so the two of them called the police. Both of them denied that they had ever been told on a prior occasion to vacate this premises. All right. 
So what we have here is sort of a terroristic threats property dispute. It's a weird one, right? It's something. <laughs> so any comments so far? You want me to keep going with this? Um, well, yeah, you can just, we can probably go ahead and zip through it and then we can discuss it. Okay, so a police officer testified that Mark Anderson had refused to surrender when he was first confronted. He only did so when the officer threatened to taser Anderson. So then Anderson tossed aside the folding tree saw in his hand and he got down on the ground. The officer said that when he asked Mark why he didn't comply at first with orders to get on the ground, Anderson told him I, that he wanted me to shoot him. That's the quote from the officer. So Anderson tells the officer, quote, he wanted me to shoot him. After the prosecution finished presenting its evidence, the defense sought to call Don Lano. So that's Don, D-A-W-N-L-O-N-O. She is the off-site manager of the property where all these people are living. So that's Richard, Kian, and Mark. They called her to present evidence of how the property had been trashed and to testify that Richard and Heon were not authorized to live there. The judge tells the defense they can't present this testimony. Mark Anderson testifies that there were several living units on the property and that he had been living there as the on-site, quote, property manager. One of his duties was to plant several crops to conform to agricultural zoning requirements. He said he was also supposed to keep out trespassers and oversee contractors working on the dwellings to make them available for rental. So Mark testified that he had met Keon in March of 2010 when she came to help someone else move off the property, but then she never left. And that Richard had joined her shortly thereafter. Mark gave a drastically different account of what happened on the day of the incident. He said that he told Richard, you guys are trespassing. You got to leave that house. But that Richard claimed that Myers, the quote Myers, had given them permission to live there. Anderson told the jury that he had told both Richard and Keon that Myers was very close to calling the police and having them arrested for trespassing. He testified that when he, that he then walked away from the, t- the pair and never took out his tree saw. Mark denied telling the police to shoot him. He said that when police approached him with guns drawn, he asked, what are you going to do, shoot me? On January 24th of 2011, the jury convicted Anderson of making terroristic threats. He was sentenced to nine days in jail with credit for time served and probation for five years. In September of 2013, the Hawaii Intermediate Court of Appeals reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial. The court held that the trial judge had erroneously excluded the defense evidence that Richard and Keon were trespassers who, quote, made a mess on the property. Evidence that Mark said would have shown their bias and motive to fabricate claims against them. The court also held that police testimony about Anderson's remarks during his arrest should not have been allowed into evidence because Anderson had not been given any Miranda warnings. On February 19th of 2014, the prosecution dismissed this charge. Okay, so this was written up by uh, Maurice Posley over at the law school at the University of Michigan. 
I'm just giving him credit here. Sure. Um, right. So this is an exoneration case that I feel like in a million years, anybody covering exoneration cases probably wouldn't cover. Well, <laughs> I, it is, um, I love you know, Hawaii. <laughs> no, okay. Well, sure. But it, well, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with covering it. Um, it actually has some great things to point out in it. But um, so you're talking about a, a nine day sentence here, right? Uh, which by the time uh the exoneration had occurred. That sentence was long over, right? Correct. Okay. And so um, what what do you think about this case? I'm shocked that this was allowed to continue in court. Well, to me, uh, this was a complete waste of resources. All of it was. The first part is you've got people trespassing and possibly making a mess calling the police yes right and and for whatever reason i feel like that's i don't know it's bothersome to me because it seems like that would be the last thing you'd want to do if you were trespassing right Um, i would assume so yeah but they you know they went right on with this and said you know let's call the police and make trouble for this person is it's how i interpret it right and so from there, it I feel like um, Mark Anderson was very calm and tolerant of this situation, right? I, I do think it's possible uh, that he was working out on the property because you know he was the on on site property manager, and so you know he may have had a tree saw with him. I don't think he ever threatened anybody with it. Right. It just seems like a dumb thing to do. And then the other part, what really just kind of it it surprises me or maybe not. I mean, I don't know. It's just weird when the cop says like that. He said that when the officer uh, when he said he was going to chase him and he got down on the ground and the officer went over to ask him why he didn't comply with the orders at first. The the officer understood him to have said that he wanted the cop to shoot him, right? Correct. Doesn't it make more sense that he would have said, well, what are you going to do, shoot me? Yes. Okay. And so to me, that makes like so much more sense. However, the court ruling, the the appeals court, uh, it's actually called the Hawaii Intermediate Court of Appeals, when they reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial, they actually um, did something that's kind of uh, noteworthy. They uh, state that Anderson's remarks during his arrest should not have been allowed into evidence because he had not been given a Miranda warning, right? And so that gives um, us the opportunity to say, hey, we're always talking about like, oh, were they Mirandized, right? Yes. And here's a situation where, I, I mean, it doesn't really matter, right, in the grand scheme of this whole case. However, this is exactly what the Miranda rights are designed to protect. And so, uh, you know, when you're when a person being taken into custody is Mirandized, they're told that anything they say can and will be used against them, right? Well. 
in the event that you've said something before you're advised of that, it literally cannot be used in court against you. Right. Right. And so while this is one of those sort of random things that doesn't really matter, because he made that comment to the police um, and he hadn't been Mirandized, the court wouldn't allow it as testimony. Yeah, they're just upholding a precedent that they felt like uh, was needed. I'm just so confused. Like, okay, in my mind, most of the jurisdictions I've lived, I think, even with that accusation, and say there's only a line investigator or a patrol officer involved, I think that rises to like a misdemeanor count of communicating a threat. I don't know how the knife or tree saw would affect that jurisdiction, the jurisdiction, but it feels like an overcharge to begin with. Well, so I would agree with that, except all I can say is, now I know this wasn't his property, but he, he was the on-site manager of the property. So he did have a legitimate right to be there. Yes. Okay. And so I would have to say, like, like on my own property where I live, yeah, um, that I would feel absolutely entitled to pull out whichever one of my stalls I wanted to and tell a trespasser that if they did not leave, I was going to cut their head off. <sighs> and I don't feel like I would be arrested for anything. Now, granted, I wouldn't actually do that. I have a baseball bat, but I was trying to uh, draw a parallel to the story, right? Yeah, no, I understand. Okay. And so I'm just saying that um, people who are rightfully in a place, right, they actually have the uh, ability, the authority, the right, whatever you want to say, to use, you know, a threatening uh, statement, not to mention the fact that, like, ultimately nobody did anything here, right? I, I mean, so if this guy just said, get off the land, or I'm going to kick you off or call the police or whatever, I don't I don't see – okay, have you been to Hawaii? I can't remember. I know you've been to island cult places, right? You, but not Hawaii. I've been to islands. I've never been to Hawaii, but I, I don't know that that's really relevant. No, no, well, so – there's an attitude in Hawaii that I think Mark Anderson probably fits into. And it's, it's sort of a, a, a laid back kind of uh, almost a little sarcastic. What are you going to do? Shoot me like that kind of thing. And I have a feeling as if you guys don't leave, I'm going to have to like, call the cops or get you arrested for trespassing or have Myers call the cops or something. I don't think any of this, like, I think this is drama from the two people. Oh, from, it absolutely. Is, is. They didn't want to get kicked off of where they were staying. Yeah. Because that's the other thing about Hawaii. It's expensive to live anywhere in Hawaii. Well, sure. But like, I mean, my point is like, if somebody was, you know, living in my chicken coop, and I hadn't allowed it. And I tell them, you know, if you don't leave, 
I'm going to cut your head off while you're sleeping or whatever they alleged he had done. And then they call the police and have me arrested. I would lose my noodle over that. Okay. And so there is just this slight difference here where like Anderson doesn't technically own this property, right? Right. So it's not his property in terms of like, but I would say that he had every right to be there while these other people didn't. Okay. Yeah. And sometimes you can, you have to like be a little tough about your approach to getting somebody off of your, off of the property you've been charged with maintaining. Right. especially since they were clearly a nuisance, right? Like they were making a mess. They weren't welcome. It it was like she had invited herself and then she also invited a friend, right? That's what is presented. Yeah. She invites herself. They kind of ignore that she's there and just let her stay. But then she starts bringing other people because it says initially she was there to help someone else leave. Right. And, and, but she never left. And so I would say, you know, arguably that's the very first mistake. Now, as far as like, you know, what are her squatters rights? Well, I don't know, but regardless of what they are, um, I would have to say that arresting the person that who is actually allowed to be on the property. Yeah. I don't feel like that was the right course of action. Um, I don't know why they went that direction and I don't know how much trouble they have with this type of thing. But to me, like this entire thing was a waste. It was such a waste. Yeah, it, it really is a waste. I mean, I don't, so I don't know how far you want to go with this one. If you want to add, you want to add another exoneration from this area to this? It's up to you. I, I have another interesting exoneration that's nearby. Um, it's a little more serious to the case, but it does tie back to this one. If you want to uh, talk about this, there's okay. So, unfortunately, as serious as it ended up being, Mark Alexander basically gets exonerated and cleared of that, like he should have been in the first place, probably. Um, this case is not quite as simple. This is a December 28th, 1990 case. So, it's right around Christmas time. And it's in Hawaii. It's also in Maui County. So the same place as Anderson's case. Now, the crimes that are alleged here are sexual assault, kidnapping, other violent felonies, uh, burglary, and unlawful entry. The reported crime date is in 1990. There's a conviction in 1992. And then an exoneration in 2011. The sentence was 35 years plus. Uh, the race or ethnicity of, for like classification purposes of this exoneration is other, because this is a, a Hawaiian local uh, and indigenous person. At the time of the crime, he was 20 years old. And the contributing factors are a mistaken witness ID. And then did DNA evidence contribute to the exoneration? And the answer is yes. Okay. And this is another short one, but I feel like it's kind of an important one. On December 28th of 1990, a man broke into the home of a 25-year-old woman in Haiku, Hawaii. 
He held a knife to her throat and he raped her repeatedly while her young children slept in a nearby bedroom. The woman later identified Alvin Jardine as the man who had raped her. Jardine denied having anything to do with the attack. And he said that the night before he had drunk between 14 and 16 beers and that he was home asleep when it occurred. All right. It ends up finally becoming an arrest and going to court. Uh, it specifically ends up in court in July in, uh, in June of 1992. All right. Have you ever heard of this guy before or this case? No. Okay. So uh, the context of all this, it won't take very long. He gets convicted on June 3rd of 1992. But what they don't tell you is it took three juries to get this conviction. The first two trials end with hung juries. But this 92 jury, they found him guilty of four counts of first-degree sexual assault, three counts of attempted sexual assault, burglary, kidnapping, and terroristic threatening. That last charge is actually the same charge as Mark Anderson. So he gets sentenced to this long 35-plus years uh, prison sentence. He maintains his innocence throughout the trial and after the conviction. In 2002, he comes up for parole, and he's uh, he's not considered for parole. So he spends nine more years in prison, Because he refused to enter a sex offender treatment program, which would have required that he admit guilt in order to get into the program, in order to get parole. Do you follow that chain of things he has to do? I do. Mm -hmm. Okay. So in 2009, the trial court ends up granting a motion for Jardine to retest DNA from stains found on a tablecloth that was placed on a chair where the rapist of this woman sat and where this crime had occurred. The test results end up excluding Jardine as the source of bodily fluids and blood that's present here in three out of the four stains. The stains on the tablecloth had been tested before Jardine's 1992 trial, but the results of the earlier testing were inconclusive. This more sensitive testing, which is something we talk about a lot in these cases and you and I talk about a lot in general. Um, You know, you get this much more specific testing. They call it sensitive. I say, you know, more accurate testing that eventually proved that, uh, that Jardine doesn't have anything to do with this, but it wasn't available at the time of his 92 trial. Fortunately for Jardine, the tablecloth ends up getting saved. All the other physical evidence from the case was lost by the prosecutor sometime between the appeals in the 90s and 2009. On January 21st of 2011, the trial court orders a new trial based on the DNA evidence and they release Jardine on bail. On July 21st of 2011, the court dismisses all the charges against Jardine because the prosecution, uh, the prosecution's office, they decide they're not going to proceed on a fourth trial of the case because they can't. All right. So this is a DNA case. And this is a DNA case where eventually this guy is pretty much completely excluded 
from being the source of certain stains. Did you catch all that? I did. Um, and so um, it, this is interesting because the 1992 trial, they did do um, testing, and I assume they mean DNA testing, but I don't know that for sure. But they did do um, testing with the intention of, you know, matching or uh, excluding the defendant, right? And in 1992, when those tests were done, the results were inconclusive, right? Which just means that they couldn't definitively say one way or the other. And they got help. I imagine that the... um the swatches that were cut were probably cut by the lab. That would be my guess. Yeah. Um, and so there was enough left in 2009 uh, because I don't know exactly when it happened, but at some point in time, uh, you know, the word was put out that like, if you had evidence in your case, uh, it could possibly be retested, right? Like for defendants and defense attorneys and everything. And so in this case, when they were able to retest uh, those four stains that had previously been inconclusive, three out of the four stains were completely excluded as being the defendant, right? So he could right. not have contributed to the DNA in those three stains. The fourth stain, he, I guess he, it was either inconclusive or they couldn't exclude him from being the source of it, but that also, that doesn't mean he was included, right? Correct. That just means that um, for, for whatever reason, uh, he, he couldn't be excluded. But I would say that, um, you know, the three out of four is definitely enough to say, okay, yeah, this is the wrong guy, right? Yeah. Well, so if you, if you go, if you want to read like a, a lot of fun stuff, um, Jardine versus State and Jardine versus Reed are where the court orders come from in this case. There are a lot of motions filed over the years on this case for a number of different reasons by a number of really good lawyers. Now, some of the stuff that they file along the way is related to the length of the sentence and some of it, like they just keep filing on behalf of this guy and he has some lawyers that really believe in him. I'll say that. Um, there are a number of things here where it, it, it's unusual for a defendant to basically be told, we're going to parole you, but you have to not only admit it, but you have to complete this program so that we can make sure you're safe for the community. And for the defendant who really wants to get out of prison to basically say no. Now, he filed a petition in 2008 for relief under a, a writ of habeas corpus. The way that he was trying to get around that was to say that, okay, it was improper to require him to complete that program because of the timing of his sentence and his conviction. Their claim from Jardine's uh, lawyer's side was that the Department of Public Safety was responsible for adding on the the time between when he was convicted and when, and you have to remember this guy was in jail for three trials so ahead of three trials. Um, but adding the sex offender treatment program constituted a change in his sentence. Like even though it was a parole requirement, 
he was basically saying that uh, there were a couple problems with it. One of the problems they attacked was it wasn't available. This sex offender treatment program was not available in the facility that he was in because he would have to admit that he was guilty and they would transfer him to the facility so he could complete the program. That's one of the things that happened. One of the other things that happened was he felt like they had not applied credits properly towards his sentence related to the pretrial time that he's been incarcerated. So there's lots of information out there to read about this case. Um, I will say this, it doesn't have like a super amazing ending. Um, did you sort of read through like the, the post-conviction stuff here? I mean, the post-exoneration uh, stuff here? Like, where he sued? Yeah. It was yeah, like... It, it's, it's really pretty, sad. So, okay. In January of 2013, he's out. Prosecution's not moving forward. He files a wrongful conviction lawsuit against the state of Hawaii, against Maui County, the Maui Police Department. And it has a bunch of – so those are the entities he's suing, and it has a bunch of individuals listed. They settle the lawsuit finally in 2016 for $7,500. So this guy, he he is arrested. Like that's a typo. What do you mean? Well – I don't see how that's possible. Uh, you think, what do you, what, what is not possible? Who would settle for that? I, I am, I'm just telling you that, uh, that's what is, it says here. Well, I know I can see it. It's just, I feel like, um, if, if I were him, right. Um, and somebody was offering me, you know, $7,500, take it or go to trial on it. I would go to trial on it. Well, according to the Maui News and according to Hawaii News now and according to the city council meeting, Jardine's lawsuit initially sought more than a million dollars in damages. And then a judge agrees to seal deposition transcripts and suddenly... Maui County agrees to pay $7,500 to settle the suit. That's all I can tell you in terms of how all I. All right. There's something uh, that doesn't smell right there, but whatever. I mean, I'm just saying like, you don't go to jail for uh, what? 21 years. Is that right? 20 years. Sorry. Yeah. 20, 20 years. years. Yeah. Okay. You don't go to jail for 20 years and then take $7,500 when you have been DNA exonerated. I, I'm, I'm with you on that. I, so, okay. I'll be completely upfront about this. At first I wasn't a hundred percent sure who we were talking about when I went hunting this case. I thought it was the beach boy. Do you know that Al Jardine was a beach boy as well? Not Did this I? album. No, no, it's not him. But oh, like, no, it didn't even so, occur to me that it was so That's That's why I grabbed this case. So when I went looking for lawsuits <laughs> at first, it was – so there were a lot of lawsuits between the Beach Boys. Okay. And so when I first started hunting it down, like I, that's what I kept coming back to was the Al, Al uh, Jardine lawsuits. So I got to read a lot of the, the paperwork here over and over and over again, looking for something that indicated like the innocence project of Hawaii has this case on their website. 
Um, and, you know, uh, the Registry of Exonerations has this case on here. He has a pending lawsuit now. I can't Who find is where that it against? is. It looks like it looks like there's still one part of it pending against the Maui police. Now, if you go to the U uh, Michigan thing, it says the lawsuit settled in. Oh, excuse me. Okay, so the Maui County part of the lawsuit is settled in for seventy five hundred in twenty sixteen. He has also been seeking compensation from the state of Hawaii. That claim is pending. Now, the original writer on this was Michael Schaefer, and he was writing this in 2017. It feels like it should be a, a, a typo. I get it. No, it, it's not because it's out there a lot of places. But I'm just saying um, uh, I can't logically follow where, where an attorney would have brought a suit like this. Uh, seeking damages for an exoneree and uh, taken that as a settlement. That doesn't make any sense. Um, he would have gotten, uh, he he would be entitled to way more than that. I, I don't know what's happening there, but it's, it doesn't make sense. No, something definitely smells weird about it. Especially, that's why I mentioned the, the sealing of the depositions. That's also kind of unusual for them to seal the depositions as the settlement's going through. It typically means somebody has said or done something, and in this case, it appears to be Al Jardine, that is problematic for whatever I reason. I, I Well, I mean, I guess it, they were sealed. But to me, um, I feel like he could have said a whole lot of things, uh, and it not in because nothing changes the fact that he was in jail for 20 years for something he was then exonerated for by DNA. I totally agree with you. And so I have trouble with that, but I mean, I, I didn't get that far into this case. Um, I just, when I saw that, I thought, well, maybe they meant like $750,000 or something, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know what's going on. Well, uh, again, I, I thought it would be more. Uh, he had definitely demanded a million dollars in March of 2014 on the first filing. Um, once, so the first lawsuit was filed. The county offered a $3,000 settlement, and then that wasn't accepted. So then a demand was made for a million dollars in March of 2014. And after a settlement conference with the court, uh, Jardine in October tentatively agreed to accept a nominal monetary settlement from the county, but his agreement was contingent on having his deposition transcript sealed. That seven-hour deposition was taken on March 25th of 2015. Attached to it is an exhibit with it had his application packet to the State Department of public safety sex offender treatment program. So under the Uniform Information Practices Act, Maui News tried to get the deposition and the exhibits from the case. So Maui News being a, a, a journalism source. Jardine's attorneys objected to the release of the deposition and exhibits saying they contain information that might cause Jardine annoyance, embarrassment, or oppression. The plaintiff's objection also said the deposition transcript includes questioning related to Jardine's psychiatric health and uh, therapy, which is protected by HIPAA. 
and a questionnaire Jardine was asked to complete to participate in the sex offender treatment program. That questionnaire got mailed to Jardine while he was incarcerated in, get this, Minnesota in the year 2000 because he didn't have access to a sex offender program in Hawaii. It asked for additional information about Jardine's offense and his life. According to the lawsuit, Jardine hadn't been released on parole while incarcerated because he maintained his innocence. During a court hearing December 23rd, oh, look, it does come back to this time of year, Peter Cahill granted the plaintiff's motion to seal the deposition and attachments over the county's objections. Cahill said he granted the motion because the questionnaire was a required evaluation in order for Jardine to be paroled and because it could be a medical-related exchange, which would be privileged. The judge also said he had concerns about the impact of making such information public in other cases. If the case went to trial, Cahill said the document would likely be the first thing presented as evidence. Deputy Corporation Counsel Mona Ludi had said the deposition and attachments were subject to being released as government documents. The lawsuit had also named as a defendant the estate of the late Antonio Funes, who was the police detective assigned to investigate the rape. According to court records, Funes' estate was dismissed from the lawsuit because the plaintiffs didn't serve the complaint on the estate. The county disclosed the $7,500 settlement after this Maui News request was made. The rest of the settlement agreement could not be disclosed because of a confidentiality uh, agreement. Right. Uh, so, yeah, whatever. Okay. I mean, he could have said, like, there's a number of things that you can say in those questionnaires. Those questionnaires, if you've never read one and you can find one online, they're pretty fascinating. They're also feel, pretty invasive. Right. But I feel like the judge could have absolutely sealed it without him having to um, to accept the settlement. It kind of feels like blackmail. Uh, without question. Yeah, I think this guy got blackmailed for Christmas that year. Um, because to me, uh, I I don't know. It just doesn't make sense, but, uh, it does seem like he had other avenues though, potentially to, to get compensation. This was just from the County. Yep. Yeah. It does say that somewhere in here I have read and I can't verify this anywhere that there was some kind of like, Jardine versus Hawaii lawsuit that took place in 2017. But I don't know what would have been there if the county was being this vicious. I can't imagine the state's going to be any better. Okay, so where this comes together with the other guy, all right, the two of them pop up together. I don't know if you saw this. Um, this is going to be how, how would this work? Okay, from the Honolulu Civil Beat. Have you ever heard of Civil Beat? No, I haven't. Uh, February 9th, 2015, they put out an article that said, Alvin Jardine spent two decades before behind bars after being convicted of breaking into a, a woman's home on Maui and raping her repeatedly. It was a savage crime, but it was a crime he did not commit. He was 20 years old when he was sentenced to prison in 1992, and then he was the father of a four-month-old daughter. It would take until 2011 and improvements to DNA testing to prove his innocence. When Jardine was finally exonerated, the state simply released him. No apology, no money, no nothing. Mark Anderson and Sean Rodriguez, they received similar treatment last year when they were let go after being wrongfully imprisoned for years. Wait a second. 
Mark Anderson was wrongfully imprisoned for years. We're going to talk about that. Um, some state lawmakers want to change that practice. They have introduced legislation that would compensate people who are convicted of crimes they did not commit and are sentenced to prison. A person who is imprisoned for another person's crime loses more than liberty and connections to family and community, said Virginia Hench, the director of the Hawaiian Innocence Project, which handled Jardine's case. The exoneree loses reputation, chances for education, earning power, credit towards a pension, she said in her testimony last week. 30 states plus the District of Columbia provide some form of financial redress for these unfortunate situations. Hawaii could be next. Bills are working their way through legislative committees right now. It's a long and certain road to final passage in the coming weeks or months, but there are early indications of progress. On the House side, the Judiciary Committee, chaired by Representative Carl Rhodes, passed House Bill 148 on Friday after amending it. The changes bring it more in line with legislation Rhodes introduced, which was House Bill 1046, which could give wrongfully convicted people at least $50,000 for each year of imprisonment with other compensation. Meanwhile, Senate Bill 145 is set to be heard Monday morning before the Judiciary and Labor Committee, chaired by Senator Gil Keith Agaron. Uh, financial compensation, free tuition or job training, and other compensatory benefits can help the wrongfully convicted person make a smoother reentry into society and increase their future self-sufficiency. Compensation allows government and citizens to make amends to the wrongly convicted person, more generally helps to repair damage to the state's public legitimacy and boost public faith and the good judgment and fairness of our system. The only written testimony against the bill so far comes from state agencies. The Hawaii Paroling Authority wrote in its testimony that HB 148 fails to consider the fact that a pardon does not erase the crime, criminal history of the falsely convicted offender, or the loss suffered by the victims. Implementation of this measure as it relates to providing compensation for offenders granted a pardon would be very costly for the state and may have a chilling effect on the pardon process. Uh, that's from HPA chair Bert Matsuka at the time. An hour before Governor Neil Abercrombie's term ended last year, he pardoned Rodriguez, who was convicted in 2002 of robbery and kidnapping in Manoa, according to the uh, National Registry of Exonerations. Rodriguez had been released in 2011, claiming, despite never admitting guilt, his lawyer, William Harrison, filed a 600-page petition with Abercrombie seeking pardon. Harrison, who testified Friday on behalf of the Hawaiian Innocence Project, said state laws need to strike a balance between the needs of Hawaii citizens and the state. Cost is a key factor in opposition from other agencies, including the Employer Union Health Benefits Trust Fund Administrator and the Attorney General's Office, uh, Sandra Yahiro. Yahiro said the EUTF board has yet to take a position on the bill, but she wanted to point out that if the state decides to give an exonerated person free health care coverage for the rest of their lives, it would cost an estimated $480,000 to do so per person if the starting age was 45 and the ending age was 75. Anderson spent nine days in jail after being convicted of making terroristic threats over a property dispute on Maui. He was convicted in time and served his time, but two years later, an appeals court reversed the conviction and ordered a new trial. I, you know, I don't know how we get to the point where they say he spent years in jail. I guess maybe they're saying collectively, Rodriguez and Mark spent years And I in thought jail. I'd missed a huge part of that. Well, I thought it was going to be pre-trial or something, but I just wanted to point out that 
that Hawaii doesn't even offer them anything. They're not, you know, they're complaining about the possibility of having to offer them free health care. Right. Um, for well, people that are exonerated and pardoned. Well, uh, I feel like, uh, so it's interesting that they said it could have a chilling effect on the pardons given, right? Um, because to me, I was thinking uh, that it could be used as a deterrent for like putting people who are subject to being pardoned later into the situation to begin with. Right. Yeah. Like it would make a more, uh, it should encourage more efficient um, adjudication to begin with. But that's interesting that it came up that it would be the other way around. So like they would pardon less people to save uh, the, the state entity money. Right. Uh, because it, they they would know that there was a price tag attached to every single pardon issued, right? Yep. Um, that's interesting. Uh, it's it. You know, I would say that while it doesn't come into uh, the discussion, uh, and it shouldn't really, but there's a price tag attached every time someone's convicted, too, right? Well, I yeah. Uh, so with. Hawaii being that far behind things, I'm not surprised by those arguments coming out. Uh, they did, and so they do eventually. Not this article's 2015. Um, it just mentioned the two of them, and I thought that was interesting. So they do end up enacting a bill in 2016, but it's not aimed at pardon. It's aimed at people proven actually innocent that they get at least $50,000 per year of wrongful confinement and then additional compensation of up to $100,000 if the court finds extraordinary circumstances and they can get a certain amount of attorney's fees back like at each level. So they did pass something, but it's more geared towards exonerations than pardons. That makes sense to me in a lot of ways. Well, sure. Uh, and that's actually better because an exoneration comes from a court. A pardon has to come from uh, the governor, right? Or Correct. the president if it's a federal crime. Yeah, but all these guys, um, I, I tried to look up and see if Jardine, I was sort of curious if he was still alive. I think he is. Um, and then it looks like all of these people will be home for the holidays. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time.
So I'm going to tell you guys uh, a few things about some of the folks who are helping sponsor our show. Now, Labrati Creations sponsors our show, and you can always use the, the Crime XS code there. Um, you can also just message them uh, at uh, Labrati Creations, and they will generally do something for the people who come from True Crime XS. They were our very first sponsor. They've done a lot for the show. And that code is CRIMEXS at LabratiCreations.com. The first new advertisers that we have, and I've, I've selected all of these guys. I've selected all of these advertisers. So the very first one is Cure. Now, I'm going to tell you guys about this, uh, about Cure as being one of our sponsors. If you're an athlete, you know that proper hydration is key to peak performance, but plain water can be boring and sports drinks can be filled with artificial ingredients and added sugars. That's why we love Cure. It's a clean and effective way to stay hydrated and perform at your best. I use it late in the day when I switch out of caffeine mode, specifically when I hit the pool or I go play tennis with my wife. I use Cure to help me stay hydrated it helps me recover after a long day. Now, you guys may not know this, but I build things. And right now, I've been building several structures on our property out here. Among those is a new podcast studio space for myself. I do a lot of that work at night and into the wee hours. And I always have some cure with me to go into my aluminum water bottle. Hydration is not just about filling up my aluminum bottle with water. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and rehydrate quickly. Whether I'm building things or putting the podcast together or chasing these dogs that you sometimes hear in my studio up and down the trails to get them worn out, Cure Hydration is the way that I choose to go. Cure Hydration is an oral rehydration solution or an ORS that contains the perfect balance of electrolytes and glucose to help your body absorb water and to rehydrate quickly. The formula is made with all natural ingredients like coconut water powder and pink Himalayan salt. It's free from artificial flavors, from sweeteners and preservatives. Cure Hydration is vegan, gluten-free and non-GMO, making it a great option for anyone with dietary restrictions or preferences. The packets are convenient and easy to use. You just mix them with your water and you drink. They're perfect for on the go. They're perfect for travel. And anytime you need a quick and effective hydration boost, ready to combat dehydration, then you try Cure today and feel the difference for yourself. You can use code TRUECRIMEXS for 20% off your order. That's T-R-U-E-C-R-I-M-E-X-S. I have a link that I'm putting in the most recent episode show notes, and True Crime Excess will get you 20% off. Our second sponsor for the show today is Laird. Now, Laird has a list of things that they want me to tell you about. They have better ingredients with amazing taste and functional benefits. They have a superfood creamer crafted from the highest quality, all-natural, real food ingredients. All Laird products are sustainably sourced and thoroughly tested to ensure that you're incorporating the cleanest, finest fuel into your routine. They have all-natural, whole food ingredients. And they contain naturally occurring MCTs made from coconut oil. There's no artificial flavors. There's no colors or additives. And there's no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. 
They want me to talk about my love of coffee, but the truth is I don't do much with coffee. But let me tell you someone who does. My wife has to have a cup of coffee every day. Now, I've fallen off recently, but one of the big things that I've done since the beginning of our relationship is she used to go and get a Starbucks every morning. I have substituted that out by always trying to make her coffee. It's not going to be every single day of time from when I met her, but for the most part, almost every day, I make her coffee. I put her creamers together and I make sure that she has a good way to start her day. So with Laird, he started experimenting with his morning ritual almost two decades ago. He found that when he started adding fats to his morning cup, like coconut oil, he had amazing energy throughout the rest of his day. He gradually perfected this recipe for an epic cup of fuel, and he began sharing it with his friends in the surf community. I'm an ocean guy, so I saw this item and I was like, okay, we're going to try this one out. Are you ready to feel more energized, more focused, and supported? Go to LairdSuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunrise to sunset. And you can use our promo code at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Our offer code for this for Laird is going to be TrueCrimeXS. Pretty much everywhere except for Labarty Creations, if you use True Crime XS, that will get you, uh, at Laird, it'll get you 15% off. At some of the other places, it'll get you 20% off. Uh, I'm going to tell you about two more uh, sponsors today. So the first one is, uh, the third one is Liquid IV. So let's talk about the real reasons that you need to hydrate. Late night TV binging, back-to-back Zoom meetings, going on a walk with your friends. Everyday hydration is not just for high-energy athletic endeavors. Liquid IV is the number one powdered hydration brand in America. It's now available in sugar-free. This is years in the making, but Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free uses a proprietary zero-sugar hydration solution with no artificial sweeteners. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, but It's also got eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness. Liquid IV hydrates two times faster than water alone. Keep your daily routine exciting with three new flavors. They've got white peach, green grape, and lemon lime. I love all of these flavors, but I think that my favorite is probably the green grape. Uh, White peach I use as a secondary flavor, and lemon lime I leave here for my kids and my kids and my wife. Uh, Liquid IV believes that equitable access to clean and abundant water is the foundation of a healthier world. They also partner with leading organizations to fund and foster innovative solutions that help communities protect both their water and their futures. To date, Liquid IV has donated over 39 million servings in 50 plus countries around the world. You can get 20% off when you grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier sugar-free or any other variant at liquidiv.com and use code TrueCrimeXS at checkout. That's 20% off anything you order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code TrueCrimeXS at liquidiv.com. And the last sponsor I want to tell you about is Zencaster. 
We are part of Zencaster's creative network. We've been using Zencaster since about midway into our first season. Uh, Meg and I experimented with a lot of different ways to put the podcast together. And the truth is Zencaster was an, an integral ingredient to us being able to bring you this show. It's so easy. It's now super easy. You can record a podcast with Zencaster. You can log in using your browser and you start recording a high quality podcast right away. You can record studio quality sound and up to 4K video with your guest. You get to feel a sense of Zen knowing that Zencaster's multi-layered backups ensure you will always have your recordings in the highest quality, even if the connection is unstable. You sound your best. I mean, if you've ever worried about what you sound like, Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes those ums and ahs in your recordings. It removes those awkward pauses and conversation too. You can set the right podcast loudness and levels while reducing background noise with a click of a button. That's how you don't hear my dogs every uh, second of every episode. Zencaster is all in one. If you've thought about podcasting before and realized that you need a lot of different tools and services, those days are now over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and you can distribute to Spotify, Apple, and other ma major destinations. Just go to Zencaster.com slash pricing and use my code TrueCrimeXS and you're going to get 30% off your first month of any Zencaster paid plan. You can also check out the other plans they have available. I want you to have the same easy experiences that I do for all my podcasting and content needs. So Zencaster.com slash pricing. The offer code is TrueCrimeXS. And it's time for you to share your story today. Uh, we are also adding New Era as a uh, sponsor for the show. New Era Cap is a headwear and apparel brand founded in 1920 in Buffalo, New York. Now, uh, I actually have some experience with New Era Caps. My dad and I have been through multiple iterations of baseball caps through the years. We collect different styles, different eras. And now my teenager has started his own cap collection and has several New Eras as the centerpieces. Our favorite teams may not be the same, but our outfits are all topped with the same new era ball caps. Uh, we love the quality and the ability to wear what the players are wearing. Not to mention new era is the leading headwear manufacturer with quality licensed products. You can support your favorite college or pro team in style from the official headwear provider for the MLB, NFL, and NBA. You can get a stylish accessory for your everyday ensemble and support True Crime XS. Just shop the official headwear and get 15% off when you go to neweracap.com. That's N-E-W-E-R-A-C-A-P.com slash True Crime Access. You can also use the code True Crime Access at checkout. That's it. That's all you have to do. And that's 15% off your order using the promo code True Crime Access. <laughs> 